Welcome back to the program. The reporting and the understanding of sports always seems to be a balancing act between the importance of teams versus the primacy of individual players or coaches. Certainly in basketball, the decision was made a long time ago that individual stars would drive the NBA. And certainly many have over the years, but as much as any one player, one coach has stood atop the sport. With 11 championships, Phil Jackson is clearly the master. But what got him there? Was it luck, timing, sheer basketball smarts, or a unique ability, almost like a film director in his prime, to manage huge egos, diverse personalities, and consistently get the best out of them? My guest, sports journalist Peter Richmond, tries in his new book to pin down who Phil Jackson is and what has made him so successful. Peter Richmond is the author of five previous books, including The Glory Game, his writing has appeared in the New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times Magazine. And it is my pleasure to welcome Peter Richmond to the program to talk about Phil Jackson, the Lord of the Rings. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jeff, and it's my pleasure to believe me. Great that to was ha- a terrific intro. Thank you. Great to have you here. Certainly a lot has been written about Jackson over the years. He's written about himself as well. Mostly by Phil, yes. Right. Yes. Talk a little bit about what you were trying to do in this book. Well, I was trying to find out whether the guy who I used to watch as a kid with long hair and a beard uh, and who had revealed in his first book the, the smoked some weed, living in a loft down when he was playing with the Knicks. I was trying to find out why he, of all people, of all people, would end up supreme. Why, when he won the 11th, I thought, I've got to write this book because I've been a sports writer my whole life, and most successful coaches come, uh, take a very predictable route. Uh, clinics, seminars with the big coaches, uh, apprenticeships, you know, um, internships, uh, resume padding, schmoozing. Phil didn't take that route at all. In fact, everything Phil did was sort of counterintuitive to the model of Red Auerbach or Billy Martin or Pat Riley or name your, name right. your, uh, your coach. And so I wanted to find out whether there were all sorts of external variables that had made this equation the most you know, phenomenal in sports history, or whether, in fact, he lucked into it, whether, in fact, he, you know, his tweaking might have helped, but he, he really had some really brilliant strategic coaches, right place, right time, because he had a lot of critics, you know, a lot of critics who said that this whole Zen thing is bull and anybody could have won with these players. And I was curious. And as a writer, I wanted to explore. And like Phil, I always want to teach myself something with each new book. They're never the same. So that's what I did. I set out to find out wherein the success met chance. Uh, what were the variables involved? And I was happy to find that there were a whole lot of variables and that I don't think, at the end of the day, anyone else could have won 11 rings, even with the talent that he had. To what extent was one of those variables the unique nexus between who Jackson was, the way he evolved, all the things about him that you write about, and the game of basketball itself, and the way it was evolving when he became a coach? It's a great question. What was happening as he, when he was coaching, uh, when he was playing in the NBA, it was a pure team game. He apprenticed under Red Holtzman. His second year with the Knicks, he had back surgery, didn't play. They kept him on the team. 
He was Red's scout. He was Red's assistant. He was Red's... Uh, uh, he'd go on the road with the, the team and room with players who Red thought weren't getting the system, and the system with Red was a precursor of the triangle. It was everybody touches the ball. And then, as he got into coaching in the minors, uh, CBA, the emphasis shifted to one-on-one. The emphasis shifted to Michael Jordan is the NBA. Um, before uh, Wilt Chamberlain had kind of been the NBA. Uh, Dr. J is the ABA. Um, now it becomes an individual sport, and we transition over into entertainment instead of athletics. And that was largely a function of television blowing up and having to just there was just they needed programming and 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 it was it was going crazy and the NBA was one way of feeding the was, maw of those of us who need entertainment it was also a decision seemingly made by david stern at a certain point to say yes. that this was going to be a game of stars of celebrities not a team it, game i think you're absolutely right and i've i've got nothing but respect for stern and i've i actually known him since before he was the commissioner and he's really a sensible guy he loves phil um they, they get along they're they're kind of renaissance men they, well david isn't as learned as phil but they both think outside the box but you're absolutely right i'll never forget the day i saw at the end of uh i'd probably been in the league one year i think and I opened up the New York Times, and there was a full-page ad for the All-Star Game uh, coming to the Madison Square Garden. And I can't remember. I might have the year wrong. And the full-page ad showed Michael Jordan on the left side and Kobe Bryant on the right. And I thought, uh-oh, you're not selling the All-Star Game to Madison Square Garden uh, in the city where the, the, the league's headquarters are as 24 of the greatest athletes ever? It's a one-on-one. That might as well be Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier. What's that about? <laughs> so Phil comes in, and by fortuitous circumstances, just because Jerry Krause in, in Chicago has been watching him from afar, and Phil put together, it, Phil's greatest championship to me was winning the CBA title with the Albany Patroons because you got 12 guys whose sole purpose in life is to put 42 points on the board and get called up for a 10-day tryout with the Milwaukee Bucks. They don't care about team. Phil comes in and says, guess what? See these two rings? These happened because everybody sublimated their ego. And even if you don't become an NBA star, which you probably won't, you're going to have a ring if we win this year. And nobody's ever going to take that ring away from you. And goddamn, if you didn't turn that team into 12 guys who were playing a game. And they won that ring. So Jerry Krause looks at him and he says... Here's a coach who has rings, and we don't have any here on any of our assistant coaching staff. So that, that, that alone is good. Secondly, in an age of superstars, when I've got Michael Jordan, and then I've got Scottie Pippen, who's not sure about Jordan yet, and then the rest of my team is kind of not there, I need somebody who remembers the game that was a team game. He also had Tex Winter, the triangle offense uh, guy, on his bench, but Doug Collins wasn't letting him use the triangle. So Krauss brought him in in a way that was, that was fa- thankfully counterintuitive to what David Stern was thinking at the time, which was, I'm going to come in and get... The, 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 the model of having a superstar and 11 other guys does not work. It just doesn't. If you've got two superstars and 10 other guys and you're not winning, it's still not working. Guess what? I know of a coach who actually his entire life has been um, structured around... He was an outsider, Pentecostalist parents... Um, he couldn't dance or go to the movies, watch TV. He had to he had to integrate himself into society, University of North Dakota, and then the NBA, and he did. 
He was an outsider, though. And most players in the NBA are outsiders. They come from very different upbringings than northern North Dakota and Pentecostal churches, but they are outsiders in the society that we consider to be our mainstream society. So Krauss was smart enough to see, I think I've got a guy who can mold 12 instead of 2 and 10. And players love that. I can't tell you how many players I've talked to on the Patroons and the Lakers and the Bulls who said, I'd gone from being a number eight guy on Phoenix that nobody was paying any attention to, to the number eight guy in Chicago where he said to me, you're essential. When I call on you, you're essential. You're here for a reason. You might not be Michael, but Michael's not you. There's something you can do better than anyone else on that team. And the result would be the number eight guy would suddenly jump into the game when called upon, hit the three, cause a turnover, and go sit back down and said, yes, I did it. And then as the rings piled up, that system of taking care of everybody in the family became once again the paradigm that works. As to why it isn't continuing, as to why nobody's gone back to the old Red Holtzman days where let's make sure everybody touches the ball, let's make sure everybody touches the ball on this possession, um, it's partly because there, it'll net, the, 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 it was a perfect storm. The circumstances of Phil, that NBA, and those players um, won't happen again, which is why I think nobody's going to win 11 again. But partly the genius of Jackson seems to be his ability, as it evolved throughout his years, as we've been talking about, to, on the one hand, create this team environment, but at the same time allow those individual personalities to shine through. The ability to do both seems to be the core genius that he brings to it. I agree. Um, I think that's a really important point. He was not chipping away at Michael Jordan's ego when he said to Michael, I want you to learn the triangle, because if you learn the triangle, the way we run it, it might you might not get as many points. On the other hand, you might, because you're moving all the time. Secondly, Michael, think about it. You want to average 39 and win, win another uh, scoring championship, or would you like what I have two of, because I want one? And Jordan, he just knew how to play that chord. And Jordan said, you got it, man. You got it. Now, that's not to say that Michael wouldn't say, you know, as the team was going back on after a timeout and still to call the play, that's not to say that Michael wouldn't say, guys, just give me the ball. But he, he more or less bought into it because six rings is not coincidental. And then with Kobe, a very immature young man who could have cared less about the rings, who simply for various psychological reasons, uh, an upbringing that was strange, the fact that he came straight into the NBA from high school. I interviewed him in his second year when he would have been a college sophomore. And, um, uh, you know, he was kind to me, but I'm not afraid in saying he had the maturity of a 15-year-old at that point. Phil really, that drove Phil to the wall. But ultimately, ultimately, I think Phil will tell you his greatest coaching job ever was learning how to massage Kobe's ego to the degree that after they blew up and Phil went away for a year, Phil learned and Kobe learned and then Phil came back and they won two more. His ability to take great individuals and see that and make them see that they're part of a larger fabric, which doesn't diminish the luster of their own uh, brilliance, mm-hmm. was his genius. It wasn't just the 12th guy who could come in and hit the three-pointer. It was telling Scottie Pippen, who'd always, you know, not bristled, but at Jordan's there. But there are those on that team who told me that Pippen was the better all-around player. So you've got Scotty's ego to deal with then. 
And Scotty was, you know, because Scotty wasn't, Scotty could be tough. Scotty was the guy who refused to go back into a game in the playoffs because uh, the play hadn't been called for him. Phil managed to convince Scotty that his place was uh, to be a member of this team, but he could still be the brilliant Scotty Pippen. And he was the brilliant Scotty Pippen to the degree that a few years ago when Phil was, uh, after he left the Lakers, um, you know, he said in an interview, I don't understand why Scotty Pippen isn't coaching in this league because Scotty Pippen is truly a great guy. That was Phil's way of saying to Scotty at the end, hey man, don't ever think that because I won 11 and I did it with, you know, Kobe and Jordan and Shaq that I'm, that I'm, Forgetting, I did it with Scottie Pippen. So, in a long answer to your very astute point, with he's ab- he was able to judge and assess the the the, the, uh, the triggers for everybody, and that took real insight into human nature. We're talking about eleven rings and uh, you know fourteen guys on a team, uh, much turnover. That meant that Phil Jackson had to massage, assess, psychoanalyze, reach. Uh, the respect of a whole lot of different personalities. And he did it because he happened to be the son of two very, very, very smart people and he was very, and, and who weren't curious. So he went into the world equipped with a brain that was very, very astute and curious about everything that he'd missed growing up. Everything whether it was the Lakota Sioux Native American religion, whether it was Buddhism, whether it was mysticism, whether it was true Christianity, whether it was uh, agnosticism, and he happened to be a mediocre basketball player as a coach who was burning with competitive fire. And I just think those are the variables that make it impossible that it would ever happen again. What did he understand beyond the Native American influence, the Buddhist influence, the Christian influence? What did he understand in all of this about more contemporary psychological ideas? Because clearly his psychological insights were, were at the core of his ability to deal with these players as you were talking about. I think, honestly, my own personal opinion, having read some of the stuff that he's constantly talking about in his books, is it was an overlap of Buddhism and um, the Lakota Sioux thing. The Lakota Sioux, um, down there in Pine Bluff, uh, I, I went out there and talked to, to, talked to several members of the tribe. Uh, for them, uh, this is getting a little out there, but what the hell, um, you know, they believe that the earth, that everything comes back to the original rock, which was the planet, but it, it's not literally the planet, it's a circle. Phil would have his players stand in a circle, um, holding hands, uh, when he got to the patroons, uh, and they'd have a, a moment of peace. And, and the circle was the um, sacred symbol and the sacred shape. Um, and if we're talking about uh, what we've just been talking about, uh, being able to even out everybody so they're on the same thing, if you're in a circle facing each other and you're responsible for each other, then you're a family. Phil would shut out anybody above him. The doors closed to the general manager, to the owner, to the you know, to, to, to the personnel guy. It was the team and him and the assistant coaches. That was it. That was us. We were the inner circle. And that, I think, is a direct result of his involvement with the Lakota Sioux, because when he was growing up in North Dakota, even as uh, no, it was Montana, 
uh, even before that, when he was about 12, um, he became fascinated by Native American culture because there were so many Indians, Native Americans in Montana. Uh, and he moved to a city that happened to have some great Native American art. And he actually wanted to be adopted as a little kid. He'd fantasize about being adopted into a tribe. So he took that seriously. And then the other overlap is Buddhism, in which truly the, the, the mantra that he goes by and, and, and several go by is, let go or be dragged and live each moment as the next universe. Every moment is its own new universe. What happened 10 minutes ago is now irrelevant. So in that mindset, if you lose three in a row, two to the raptors, um, you're still going to go out the next Thursday and start anew because every moment is a new symbol and a new universe. And that sounds cosmic and mystical, but he really does believe that. And he doesn't believe it so that he's shoving it down people's throats. He would not ever at a press conference try to you know tell people what i just told you about the sacred circle or the or the buddhists live in the moment but he believed it and i do think that that really was it's not as if he had to sit down with bobby hansen of the bulls and say now listen i want you to read and he gave out books but it wasn't right. heavy stuff you know i want you to read the writings of of uh you know the buddha he wouldn't do it that way but he would infect or in, inform the collective psychology, almost a, a Jungian archetype of, of knowing that the group is so much more larger than the ego, and yet, if the group wins, the ego gets all it's looking for. So yeah, his, his, his underpinnings were unusual, and I think I can't help but believe they were, they were a big part of why it was 11. Would good coaches like Riley and Red Auerbach have won many rings with the likes of Shaq, Kobe, Pippen and Jordan, oh yes. Would they have won 11? No. No one won 11. To what extent did these egos that he came up against, that he had to really dig into, to manipulate, to understand, to what extent did they influence him, and how was he different in when he had to deal with Kobe, for example, than when he was originally dealing with Jordan? It was tough. It was very tough because... He hadn't met a man. He, at that point, Kobe wasn't the youngest guy to have ever come into the NBA. That had then been eclipsed two years later by uh, somebody else he was unhappily inheriting with the Lakers. Um, it was a good thing that he met Kobe when he was in his later years because Kobe was his greatest challenge. It was as if over a decade Phil had learned to be a good professor of well-informed young undergraduates and he'd learned how to turn each student into their toward their strengths minimize their failure their, their weaknesses etc but they all had a psychological um, basis on which he could teach and then when he hit Kobe it really was a challenge um, he was baffled he was uh, unable to coach him um, Tex Winter was unable to coach him uh, there was a moment after, because uh, Charlie Rosen was Phil's best friend for all these years, and he'd written a couple of his books, and he was coaching the Rockford Lightning, and he and Phil, uh, Phil asked him out to Laker camp, and he and Tex, Charlie and Tex were running, were uh, driving back to the hotel, and Tex thought it was off the record, but Charlie was writing for ESPN, and, and Tex said, you know, he's uncoachable. Kobe's uncoachable. Um, after this game tonight, uh, you know, I said to him, you did not play well. And Kobe turned to me and he said, you didn't coach well. And to me, that and, and Charlie wrote it. And after that, Kobe was never a big friend of Charlie's. But um, that kind of said it all. Phil had never met 
this kind of raw clay. He'd he'd always had clay that he could form into some sort of finished product. This was all bets were off. This was an un an immature kid with his eyes on all the wrong prizes. And it really did force Phil out of the, you know, Phil played, coached badly, the team played badly, the Lakers fired him, and then within a year the Lakers were begging him to come back. And that year had given him time to think about new ways to talk to Kobe. And that year off was like almost like the perfect sabbatical for Phil the Professor in that he got to think about what had gone wrong. And he was such a manic competitor that he knew when the Lakers called, he was going to come back. And he knew they were going to call. I mean, he was with Jeannie Buss by then, and he knew everything the Lakers were thinking. Mm-hmm. So he had a year, instead of like, you know, sitting around and pouting or getting a TV show or writing another book, he wrote another book, but it was self-revelatory, and it said, Kobe drove me crazy. And it was his way of saying to Kobe, read this book and see how insane it is. But it was also a way of putting in print for himself so he could look at it and learn. And then when he came back, he was a different Phil Jackson. And Kobe, when he returned, Kobe was a different Kobe, and they won two more. And the fascinating thing about Jackson, as you write about him, is exactly what you're saying, the way that he evolved, the way that he kept changing, the fact that he, too, was malleable, and that his curiosity, as you talk about, enabled him to continue to grow, continue to change, evolve as the players evolved and as the game evolved? I think, weirdly enough, um, that thing of growing up in, in so strict a family, so strict a family, his mother wouldn't even go to his, college, to his high school games because she thought that um, the ego involved was dangerous. Um, his dad would go to games, but his mother simply wouldn't. She didn't like the, She thought it was anti-Christian to be a star on a basketball team. <laughs> She thought it was working against everything. She wanted him to speak in tongues, and he was scoring baskets. So he was being held back. It was kind of like a racehorse that should have been running for years and training his mind, and instead it was champing at the bit. And so when he hit the ground running at the University of North Dakota and uh, tried pre-law and saw it was totally boring, immediately reached out to philosophy, religion, and psychology and put together a triple major in which he read everybody from Heidegger uh, to P.D. Uspensky, the Russian um, mysticist, to William James, to Buddha, uh, and on and on and on. He wanted to learn everything because he hadn't been allowed to learn anything. He also wanted to drink some beers, uh, meet some women, join a fraternity, play some high pressure, you know, really champion, almost championship-winning basketball in Division Two, And then, when he gets drafted by New York City, which is the capital of thought for him, it's the publishing house of the world, it's where people, you know, everything comes through this nexus. He, so he hit the ground running there, equally intellectually curious. I mean, a guy I interviewed who was the president of Moravian College when I interviewed him last year, um, he'd been drafted by the Knicks, and he'd gone on to Yale Divinity instead. And then he came back to, for two weeks to the Knicks in 73, because the Knicks called and said, Chris, we've never seen you play. Why don't you take a couple of weeks off from Yale Divinity and come down and practice with us? So he did. And Phil's immediately talking to him about Christianity. And he wants to learn everything he can from Chris Tomford about whether uh, you know, formal Christianity is the right way to go or what, it, what is it to be Christian and not beholden to a God. And I talked to Tomford forever. Um, and then 
that's a, just another example. He was so deprived of the ability to think outside the box as a kid that when he hit the adult world, his, his, and it, it goes on to this day, his brain is still, he believes, again, back to the Buddhism, if you waste any second in not learning something new, you're wasting every moment on earth. You've got to simply keep learning. It's the only thing that keeps us going, because we know what the end is. As Catherine Hepburn said, of course life is tough, it kills you. So what you've got to do is you've got to use every moment to learn what you didn't know. And he still does that. And I think the players picked up on that also. But again, will it happen again? Not until we get a Phil Jackson. But that would take, again, that Petri dish would have to include a kid who wasn't allowed to watch TV until he was 18. <laughs> and then a kid who learned under Red Holtzman. And then a kid who would play poker games with Dave DeBusher's crowd. And then a kid who would, who would with, with Neil Walk and with Eddie Mast, these two other extremely intellectual Knicks, would bicycle around the city looking at architectural landmarks. It was really, it was one in a, it was one in a lifetime. And, and to say that all of that was incidental to the fact that he won 11, and that anybody could have won 11 with those guys, no, it's to ignore that he was more than a coach. He was a man. He was a man who had a, who had a brain that was fertile and remains curious and seeking. And at the same time, yes, he's an insane competitor. He knows how to coach. He surrounded himself with very savvy technical coaches. And he said, I'm not going to bow to anybody. My teams are my teams. And the, and the players picked up on it. There was this one moment, one player told me he came to the, to the Bulls for the first time, for the first practice. People are shooting around, and then Phil blows the whistle, and everybody runs to the end line, which is what you're supposed to do at the beginning of a practice, and put your feet on the one line, not over the white line, on the white line. And then I think it was Judd Buchler. And he said, I watched Michael and Scotty sprint, trying to beat the other to be at the line, to be in place, so that the 12 of them could then stand there, hands behind head, uh, the back, while Phil addressed the team. And he thought, oh, my God, what is this? I thought I was going to see Michael and Scotty with Phil on the side. Instead, they're like, he's the, he's the general and they're the sergeants. And so, you know, I just don't see it ever happening again. I just don't see it. And I'm glad I was able to spend the time to explore it because it allowed me to learn. Now I'm reading all these guys. Peter Richmond, the book is Phil Jackson, Lord of the Rings. Peter, I thank you so much for spending time with uh, us today. Jeff, I thank you. Um, uh, have a great day. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 